Thank you for directing your internet connection to this sermon audio page for Christ Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Learn more about Christ OPC by visiting our webpage at www.christopcatl.org. Currently, Christ OPC is meeting on campus each Sunday at 11 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. for worship using social distancing protocols and assigned seating. Sunday school is offered to children and adults at 9.30 a.m., concluding at 10.30 a.m. for a brief time of fellowship before the 11 o'clock worship. A volunteer-staffed nursery is available for Sunday school and the 11 a.m. worship. Nursery volunteers and children receive temperature checks prior to admittance. Please contact the church through its website for additional information and directions. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 34 through 39. Matthew chapter 10, 34 to 39. And before we read it, let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. O gracious Father, you are the lover of our souls. And we have come tonight to bless you. And as we approach your word, we ask that you would bless us that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that you would help us to mark, learn, and inwardly digest what you have for us here in this passage. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's word and may he indeed write it upon our hearts. If you were told to describe Christianity in one word, what would you say? Grace, mercy, love? All of that would certainly be appropriate, especially when looking through the lens of Jesus Christ's work on the cross for us. Or you might be tempted to think challenging, especially given the battles with sin and struggles and hardship. Or maybe it's the word peace, because every single New Testament book either implicitly or explicitly speaks of it. But how about this? How about the word dangerous? Is Christianity dangerous? Well, there is a sense in which it is. Jesus seems to indicate that in the passage before us, because 
He says a reason why he came was not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's unpack it by first considering true peace. If I gave you enough time, I'm sure that many of you in this room could come up with a list of songs, modern day songs that that speak of the theme of peace. Give peace a chance. Imagine, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. Sunday, bloody Sunday, on and on we could go. But all of these songs, they speak of peace in an incomplete fashion. It's limited in some sense. For these songs, it seems as if it's simply a feeling of serenity gained now with no or little conflict or tension in the gaining of it. But that is not the kind of peace Jesus has in mind here in our text. You know, the kind of peace that asserts the absence of strife. There will come a day when that actually will occur, when Jesus returns, when there will be no more fears and no more fighting, but not at Christ's first coming. Instead, what we have here is that Jesus came to divide. Look at verse 40, look at verse 34. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Kids, what does a sword do? It cuts, right? It splits. It brings division. Jesus is coming, does the same. And I realize this may sound a little bit surprising because Jesus is identified as the prince of peace. His ministry was prophesied to guide our feet into peace. And the angel sang at his birth, on earth peace, goodwill toward men, right? But none of this peace comes without conflict, without division. Think about Jesus' life up to this point. When he was around two years old, what happened? King Herod tried to kill him. When his ministry started, the religious leaders, what did they do? They sought to silence him. Jesus was not at peace with all men. He came bringing a sword, separating himself from his opponents. And the context of our passage only reinforces this point. Jesus had already gathered the 12 to himself, and he was in the process of sending them out two by two to go and preach and minister to people. But in doing so, in in sending them out, he warned them, persecution will come. They should expect it. And when it does, they should not be afraid. Because even though their hearers could possibly kill them, they do not have power over their souls. Instead, they should fear the one who does, not man, but God. And now he tells them about the nature of true peace. It does not mean that there is no resistance. Before his death, Jesus told his disciples, you will have trouble. 
And that trouble includes adversaries who will stand against the gospel and those who embrace it, those like us. When the Nazis rose to power in 1933, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was one among a group of Christians opposing them. And in a rather bold move, he publicly spoke against Hitler in a radio radio address, only to have his his speech be silenced mid-sentence. Hitler had presented himself as a friend of the faith. But Bonhoeffer realized his true colors, and he and other believers stood against him. As the Nazis sought to assimilate or annihilate believers, they stood firm, regardless of the consequences. In this situation, there would be no true peace without conflict. And this is something that we would all do well to remember. There's no doubt the scriptures clearly call us as Christians to be gentle, winsome, kind, and compassionate. That we should not be harsh or, you know, difficult people to be around. How we treat others or our tone of speaking should not be an offense. But that doesn't mean there won't be offense. If we speak of Christ, if we herald the gospel, there will be conflict. Because the message of the cross is offensive. It first states that something is wrong with man. He's a rebel. She's a sinner. Deserving death and doom for all eternity. And the only way of escape is in Christ. Man's sole hope is trusting in Jesus to rescue from just judgments, which means he cannot trust himself. She cannot rely on her past achievements or any ability that she thinks she has to pay for her past failings. Christ alone is enough. And that is offensive. That's true. Christian morality is offensive. But understand, the gospel is more. Christ himself, his living, dying, resurrecting, is of the greatest offense to man because it is an indictment against man. He cannot save himself. So as you speak of Christ and his work, do not be surprised by opposition. In fact, You really should expect it. Don't let the reality of it inhibit your evangelism. I think too often we don't speak of Christ because we're smug, we're lazy, we're comfortable. But there's also times when we don't do it because we're afraid. We're afraid of what might happen to us. Rejection, the dissolving of a friendship or public ridicule. And yet, we are called here in this text to just be faithful, wisely, winsomely, lovingly, and boldly speak of the Savior 
Remember, true peace. Jesus comes bringing a sword. Some will oppose you. Be courageous and trust God. The next thing we find here is true allegiance. True allegiance. Jesus was giving his disciples a lesson, a lesson in realism. He was about to send them out to preach. And maybe they thought to themselves, oh, I can't wait to go. People are going to hang on every word I say. In each town, they would declare that was the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. All will follow Christ because of my words. All will embrace it given my eloquence. This attitude may have been the case with the young Charles Simeon, 18th and 19th century English preacher. He was from a well-educated family. He had been trained at the highest of universities. And at the age of 23, he was appointed vicar of the esteemed Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. What a prestigious place to preach the gospel, he likely thought. But for the people there listening to him, they couldn't stand him. They hated him. They didn't want him. They didn't care for his preaching. They didn't care for Christ. It was a dose of reality for him. And that was what Jesus was giving his disciples in our text. Some will believe, but listen, many, many will reject you. Why? One word, allegiance. Their commitments are elsewhere. Their devotion is not with the Lord. Jesus said, look at verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Christ was referencing a verse in Micah chapter 7. The prophet was speaking during a time in Judah's history when Ahaz was on the throne. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of God. He followed the idolatrous practices of the nations around him. He put a new altar in the temple and offered sacrifices to false gods. You might remember this morning. He's the one who burnt one of his sons as a sacrifice. He was awful. And so Micah challenged the people. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Are you going to go in the direction of Ahaz and his cronies? The road that your family or your tribe may be taking? The way of deceit and destruction? Is that what you're going to do? Or will you take the Lord's path? Will you follow the ruler to be born in Bethlehem? Where's your true allegiance? It's a question we see all throughout the scriptures. Note Joshua at the end of his life. He knew the nation's penchant for waffling in the faith, that they like to flirt with idolatry. And so he told them, choose this day whom you will serve, whether false gods or the true God. And there's no doubt that Jesus understood something about this. 
He himself was obviously wholly committed to his father. But Jesus also knew the opposite, the sting of infidelity. His own disciples were not loyal at times. They all left him on Golgotha's hill. Judas, of course, betrayed him with a kiss because he did not have true allegiance. And Jesus' family, they didn't seem to be all that loyal, especially early on. Mark chapter 3, after ministering to great crowds, what happened? His family heard about it, and they went out to seize him because they said, he's out of his mind. Jesus was on one side, and his family was on the other. That's what happened to an apologetics writer who recently died by the name of Nabil Karishi. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a Muslim who grew up in a loving Islamic family. His parents provided and cared for him, but in his 20s, he was confronted with the Christian faith. And yet he knew, he knew the cost would be great if he embraced Christianity. He would have to give up his status and wealth, relationships and peace. He would crush his parents. There would be a seemingly insurmountable distance between them. But he believed in Christ anyway. He served the Lord no matter the cost. And when he became a believer, he was basically disowned. The gospel that brought peace to his heart caused division. His commitment was first to Christ, and it cost him family members. It puts into perspective Jesus' words in verse 36. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Which leads us to ask ourselves, where's our allegiance at? How can we assess it? Well, perhaps we need to ponder some questions. How do we spend our time? What we focus on is what we are devoted to. So if our attention is wrapped up in the world with sports, entertainment, clothes, then our fidelity lies there. Or when we sin against others in our family, workplace, and church, what do we do? Do we make excuses? Blame others? Just forget about it? Or is our commitment to Christ so that we take the initiative to confess and ask forgiveness, saying, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Or we could ask, how's our giving? You know the phrase, money talks. There's some truth in that. Because what we are dedicated to, we spend money on. Listen, I'm devoted to playing tennis. How would you know that? Well, I buy rackets and tennis balls so that I can go and play. Well, what about our commitment to God and his call to give to the church? 
Or finally, what about our sexual ethic? Are we submitting to what the scriptures teach regarding sexuality or the cultures? How we answer reveals where our fidelity lies. All these questions and many more help us to assess where's our allegiance? Where's our loyalty to Christ? Perhaps you've heard it said before, everybody has an allegiance to something. Where's yours? Jesus comes bringing a sword, saying, follow me and me first. Which leads us to next consider true love. And I know exactly what some of you in this room are thinking. You are reciting in the back of your mind that scene from The Princess Bride, you know, where the priest speaks about true love to Prince Humperdinck and Buttercup. And while that scene is funny, of course it is, there's actually some truth there, at least a little bit. Because there are bonded and exclusive aspects to true love. We find Jesus stressing them here in verse 37. He says, look there, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And there are three sets of repeated words that I want to draw your attention to as we think about this verse for just a minute. The first is the word love itself. It's the Greek word phileo, and you probably know what that word means. It refers to brotherly love, right? But there's actually a, a little bit more to it than that. It does refer to you know, the kind of devotion that we ought to have towards family members or a close friends, meaning there's a stickiness to this kind of love. What happens if you accidentally superglue two things together? You virtually can't tear it apart. They're bonded. Well, that's the kind of love Christ calls for, the kind that sticks to him. Think about the love that existed between David and Jonathan. It ran deeper than family. The two were bonded together. Those Saul tried Blood couldn't tear it apart. Though Jonathan would have to give up his throne, position and prominence couldn't budget. And Jesus is demanding the same. True love involves lasting, ongoing, deep commitment to Christ. And it also entails affection and intense attachment. In John chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, For the Father loves Phileo, the Son. And John chapter 16, verse 27, speaking of his disciples, Christ declared, The Father himself loves Phileo, you. Now, surely there is an intensity of love between the Father and the Son, and God for us. And that is what Jesus says we must have for him. 
He's calling for a zealous, immovable, dedicated love. Is that you tonight? Does your prayer life show it? Does my prayer life show it? Husbands and wives, when you first got married, didn't you always think about each other? Always on each other's minds? Still that way, right? Is that how we are with Christ? Communing with Him, considering Him, committed to Him, always. Think about another word in verse 37. More. You see it there? Perhaps it's better translated above. So that what Jesus is saying is, you must love me first. Parents, children, marital relationships, friendships, I must be above them. Which does tell us that there is an order to our love relationships. Jesus is not announcing, care about no one except me. Well, that would be narcissistic. Christ wants you to deeply love others. But he should be primary. He demands priority in your life. Your love, fealty, and affection should be for him. And it should be paramount to all others. And I think there's actually something quite practical and helpful to what Jesus is saying here in this text. It shows that he understands how you and I tick and the nature of this fallen world. Listen, if your love, if your first love is for your spouse or your children, what happens if you lose them? If they die, or if it's your job, your health, your intellectual powers, your success. What happens when those things go away? You're left crushed with no hope. But if Christ is first, then no matter what assails you, no matter the opposition or hardship, you can stand because Christ is your rock. Thus, it is for your good that true love be for Christ first. And yet, we have to say more than this, don't we? So notice one other word, and it's the word worthy. Jesus says, look at verse 37 again, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He basically means they don't really have what it takes to be a disciple of Christ because Jesus is not of value to them. And he's telling us, don't make the same mistake. You have no part with Jesus if he is not foremost There must be true love for him above all. And really, how can there not be in view of Christ himself? He is worthy 
He is God enfleshed, the sovereign who stooped, the Lord who became our servant, the spotless one who took our sins. It's altogether lovely because he loves us despite us. As one Puritan put it, if there were infinite worlds made of creatures loving, they would not have so much love in them as is in the heart of Christ Jesus. Priority is due to him then because of him. It is proper that our chief affections be for our loving Savior. And in light of this, you might say with the hymn writer, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. But how do you get it? How do you get more love for Christ? Similar to what we talked about this morning. You keep looking at Christ. The more you see him, the more you will love him. He has true love for you, dear believer. Won't you increase in true love for him and keep looking at Christ? There's one more thing we find in this text. It's true life. True life. Jesus went on to say in verse 38, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now those must have been some seriously shocking words to the twelve. Take up a cross? an instrument of torture and derision, of physical suffering and public disgrace, of humiliation and death? You've got to be kidding me. Yes. That's exactly what Jesus called them to. As he sent them out to preach and minister, persecution may come, and they needed to be prepared to face it, to even die. For Christ. And we know that at this moment in the story, they were not prepared. After Jesus' death, what happened to them? Yes, Jesus or Judas committed suicide. But what about the others? What happened? They hid. They were filled with fear and bewilderment. But then as we keep going, what do we notice? They changed. All of the eleven, except for John, died a martyr's death. They were stabbed, stoned, and crucified. They took up their crosses, endured the shame and scorn, and gave their lives for the one who gave his for them. Likely none of us in this room will have to face this level of persecution. There are others around the world who might. North Korea, Saudi Arabia. They may be faced with the choice, follow Christ and die, don't and live. But at the least, we are being called here to be prepared for it, to be so dedicated, to love Christ so much that we would gladly give up our lives in standing firm in the faith. Now, how do you know if you are? 
that committed to Christ. Well, yeah, I think you see it in what you're committed to now. You can see it in your level of allegiance now. Your affection and pursuit of Christ now. You can see it in the life you're living now. Which is actually what Jesus addresses next. Look at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus gives his disciples a lesson in true life. He basically says, you won't find it by gaining, but only by losing. Now, what does that mean? How about this? How about self-denial is the way to true life? And of course, this runs so counter to our culture. Our society says, you do you, you be you, which really on one level is an assertion of self-indulgence. But Jesus is saying here, that kind of living will kill you. The only way to true life is to die to self. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and die, it will not what? Bear fruit. John Calvin, he called self-denial the sum of the Christian life. The Puritan Matthew Henry, he said, self-denial is the first lesson in Christ's school. It's the medicine we need for a healthy spiritual life. We give up what we want for what Christ wants. And in doing so, we die to ourselves. And thus, we find out what it actually means to truly live. Selfish living will kill us. Selfless living for Christ will not. Jesus' disciples, they were about to be sent out. Where they would encounter opposition of all sorts. So, they needed to check their hearts a little bit. Where was their loyalty? Their devotion? Was it with themselves? Was that what they were seeking? Self-promotion and self-protection? Or was it Christ? Would they really give up all to follow Jesus? How does this apply to us? Well, it means... When you don't want to forgive someone because they've hurt you, you do it. You forgive them. You don't hold on to their sins. You don't keep a record of wrong because your allegiance is to Christ. It means when you don't feel like being patient with someone, you die to yourself. You work long with their wrong. It means when you are tired and weary, you don't run and hide. You don't shirk your responsibilities. You yield, you give, you serve, you pour yourself out with a happy heart because Christ has done all of that for you. He suffered in order to save you with a a grateful heart, follow him 
And as you do, as you die to yourself and live unto Christ, I want you to know this. You will experience what it means to truly live. In dying, you will have joy. In sacrificing, you will find contentment. In yielding, you will be satisfied. Do you know why? Because your eyes will be on Christ. And he is enough for you. Heed his call to come and die. Now there's no middle ground here that Jesus is giving in this text. It's either follow Christ or don't. It's either Jesus or no Jesus. The Savior or self. May we go hard after Christ then. Because that is exactly what he did for us. He went hard after our redemption. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. May it be that for the joy set before us, our loyalty and love will be with him first. Well, there's not a single person in this room that can do any of this in our own strength. And so we need to cry out to God and ask him to help us. Would you join with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. We pray for your spirit's work in our lives. We pray, oh Lord, that you would give us a greater sense of understanding of what true peace is, at least this side of the new heavens and the new earth. Oh Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to speak of Christ and trust you no matter what may happen. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be loyal, that our allegiance would be with you because our love is first for you. May it be that we live the self-denying life, the selfless life, because we're following our Savior who did that for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.